Our Father, we come to you with great expectation, as we always do when we turn to your word, because we know that it contains in it your heart open to us. It's not a, a textbook of bloodless information written for technical experts. It is our Father's voice speaking to us. It's a living word. It's a word with your own power and your authority. It's a word designed by your infinite wisdom. And you have, by your infinite wisdom, put in that word all of the precious truth that every one of us needs for any situation in life. So we pray for the ministry of your spirit now that he will open our eyes and ears, that he will apply your word powerfully to us, help us to mature and grow and strengthen in our faith, our walk with you. And we pray too that those who do not know you will see very starkly that they do not know you and what it means to know you and that your spirit will draw them to saving faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've been preaching about 45 years, and you're about to see me do something I don't think I've ever done before exactly, and may never do again. But so here is um, my sermon notes. It's one skeleton outline page. I had a complete sermon, completely finished, and it was a good sermon. Uh, by which I mean it was biblical and uh, was, would have been perfectly happy to preach it already this morning. But as I was praying and thinking over it, I realized that it wasn't really what I wanted to bring to you from this verse. And as I thought and prayed about it, it just more and more came the way I really wanted to bring this to you. So I, that's why you got a second outline in the mail and poor Amy had to had to deal with it. Um, I will probably preach the first sermon next week, and then after that you'll be able to say, oh, okay, I see, because <laughs> I'm not going to spend five minutes explaining the difference, but you know, what, what's a hamburger? A hamburger has essential ingredients, but there are different kinds of hamburgers and different ways to present it, and you could say the same of a sermon. I mean, you know, is what a burger really a burger, or is In-N-Out really a burger? Okay, don't get started here. Just... <laughs> Just let it go, just let it go. And we're going to look into the Word of God together and hear God speak to us through this absolutely wonderful, precious, rich verse, which has meant an awful lot to me. Psalm ninety-four, nineteen: when my anxious thoughts multiply within me, your consolations delight my soul. And you see the outline is simply the words of the psalm. It's simply the two lines of this verse from Psalm 94. And Psalm 94 is an orphan psalm, meaning we don't have an ascription. We don't know who wrote it. It may well have been David. We don't need to know, or else it would be there. So let's look then at the first line, when my anxious thoughts multiply within me. Well, isn't that striking right there to see a God-chosen, sanctified, inspired writer of Scripture confessing to having anxious thoughts? He doesn't say, if I were the sort of person who ever had anxious thoughts, here's what I'd do with them. He doesn't say, well, the people I know who are weak and have anxious thoughts, here's what God does for them. He says, when my anxious thoughts multiply within me, and it's, it's stated in such a way as to uh, uh, denote to us that it happens, that it happens. And when it happens, God's consolations delight my soul. But it's not in question that they happen. So what sorts of anxious thoughts are we talking about? We'll look more closely next week at, at the kinds that are in the psalm. I mean, you see it right away in the, in the first verse where he says, O Yahweh, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth 
And then verse 3, how long will the wicked, O Yahweh, how long will the wicked exult? Well, he is in a situation where he sees those who hate God, who don't know God, in, in uh, ascendancy and exulting, bragging. He sees them powerful and empowered and confident and, and making a lot of headway, and that gives him a lot of anxious thoughts. But that's obviously not the only anxious thoughts, the only kind of anxious thoughts that there are. It's not the only kind that a writer, scripture, writer of Scripture would be speaking of. Well, look back at Psalm 3 with me. You see, you've got lots of blanks, just blanks, not blanks to fill in, so you'll need to note them down as we go along. First look at Psalm 3, and just look at the title, inspired by God, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Ah, what a horrible situation that was. His own son was seeking his life as he had sought his throne, his own son. And what else would haunt David about that? Why was Absalom doing this? Well, it was really a result of David's own sin at the far back causation of it. David's own sin had created a miserable future for him. The repercussions, though forgiven, though pardoned, still there were consequences of his sin. So he had the, the terrors of the situation and the haunting guilt of it. And that's why you see when Absalom is finally killed, David is absolutely heartbroken. He doesn't feel vindicated or happy at all that his enemy has fallen. He's absolutely heartbroken. See how he writes in verse 1, O Yahweh, how my adversaries have become many, many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Well, that's very like the opening words of Psalm 94, when my anxious thoughts multiply with me. It's the same idea, same Hebrew verb, when they become many within me, when they become a crowd within me. Well, David had a literal crowd who were saving his life, uh, uh, seeking his life. Did that cause anxious thoughts? I think that's very safe to say. Look at Psalm 10 nearby. Now look at this. Why do you stand afar off, O Yahweh? Why do you hide yourself in times of distress? In his lofty pride, the wicked hotly pursues the afflicted. Let them be caught in the thoughts which they've devised. And there's a lot in there about the, the boasting and the plans of the wicked. And at this time, he doesn't see Yahweh, well, like Psalm 94 says, he doesn't see him shining forth shine forth. That's the idea of a theophany, an appearance of God, such as uh, we read of a number of times in the Old Testament. And uh, the psalmist is praying for that, and David is noting the lack of it. And he seems far off. He seems unengaged in the multiplication of wickedness here. Uh, look next door then, Psalm 11 and uh, verse 3. Some are saying to David, just run away, just go hide. Verse 3, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? So a situation where there are so many wicked people that the righteous person has no recourse but to just go hide himself. He needs to just run away. He needs to just take shelter. Oh, that's an awful place to be. That will certainly cause anxious thoughts. Look next door again at Psalm 12. Save, O Yahweh, for the holy man ceases to be. For the faithful disappear among the sons of men. Well, I'll tell you what, if you've been following events at all, that's got to resonate with you, doesn't it? I mean, if you're over 10 years old, maybe, and you're at all concerned about the course of the country, and you can look back at people who you respected maybe 10 or 20 years ago, and they've shown themselves 
cowards. They've shown themselves spineless. They've shown themselves not really having the deep convictions you thought they had. You see more and more false teachers multiplying. You see huge churches not being characterized by sound teaching. And that's just churches. But you look at society at large, people are saying things and doing things that 10, 20 years ago, well, 10 years ago, they would have said, certainly we would never do this. 20 years ago, nobody even would have thought of it. And now it's just another day ending and why. It's just the way things are, right? You know what I'm talking about? And this can't but make a godly person have anxious thoughts. As you look at this and you feel overpowered, you feel overwhelmed, you feel weird, you you stick out, you stand out, you're, you're not going with the flow at all, and it doesn't seem like things are going well for just about anything that you care most deeply about. But then there are many other kinds of anxious thoughts as well. Turn to Psalm 51. We alluded to this a second ago, but take a look at Psalm 51 and verse 3. And you're, many of you, immediately thinking that's the psalm that David wrote after his sin with Bathsheba. Yes, indeed. And he says in verse 3, For I know my transgressions and my my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So David is haunted by guilt and the anxiety that is brought by guilt and the thought of a history that perhaps he would erase if he could. And he looks back at it and he, he, he perhaps wishes he had died the day before he did this thing. But that option isn't open. He did it. There it is. And he's left with the guilt and misery of it. Yes, you look and you see injustice, you look and you see misery, you look within and you see uh, guilt, you see all of the fruits of sin. Remember, we live in in a fallen world. We don't live in a paradise. The world we live in, things are not going as they should go. So what we've seen, as we've seen in the past, what we're seeing in our world is we're seeing the fruits of death. The wages of sin is death. But before death's final stroke, There are all sorts of harbingers and and precursors and echoes and dark fruit of death in our society. So all of the hatred, all of the division, all of the violence, all of the disease, all the misery, and death itself. These things are all fruits of the same uh, tree. Uh, The tree of our rebellion against God and the wages of sin. And living in a world like that can't but give us anxious thoughts. We see these things without us. We see, we see disease. We see death. We see disorder. We, we see uh, disobedience against God. But we look within and we see the fruits as well. As we age, we see fruits. I'll just allude to Ecclesiastes. No, I won't. I'll turn to Ecclesiastes 12. Take a quick look at Ecclesiastes 12 with me. Now that comes right after Proverbs. And 12 is the last chapter. And it begins a very poignant poem. He says, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days happen, and the years draw near in which you say, I have no delight in them. Well, that's probably after about age 40 or 50 to Solomon's time. Those are the evil days. Those are time when, as, as one writer says, life, starts, life stops giving you things and starts taking them away. And you see in yourself the approach of death. You see that, you know, as we grow, our body perhaps peaks in health and strength and vitality. And what happens after a peak? What's on the other side of a peak? 
a slope. <laughs> and we see that if we live long enough, we see that in ourselves. And things that were simpler are no longer simple, and things that were painless are now painful and difficult, or perhaps even impossible. So he says, remember your creator in your youth, so get this straight before things start falling apart and before you start falling apart. And he, he then goes on to detail that the failing eyesight, failing strength, failing desire, failing hearing, and so forth, and all those happy little things that make us glad we're going to be resurrected <laughs> if we have faith in Christ. So um, these are among them, and, and this is nothing that's uh, unique to the Old Testament. Take a look at 2 Corinthians 11, and look at... Uh, the experience of another choice saint of God. 2 Corinthians 11, starting with verse 23, the Apostle Paul is writing to Corinthians who are being bedazzled by celebrity apostles, would-be apostles, wannabe apostles. And in response, he doesn't talk about what a great guy he is. He talks about what he's suffered so he says in verse 23, are they ministers of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so, in far more labors, like this is his resume, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, in beatings without number, in frequent dangers of death. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes, less one. If math's difficult for you, that's 39 lashes. That's absolutely no extra charge. Um, Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a day and a night I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in desolate places, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brothers. What, what word keeps happening there? Dangers. Dangers. And what's danger? Danger is the threat of misery. And what does the threat of misery cause? It causes anxious thoughts. Paul experienced all these things, and they lived in the constant threat of all these things. I've been in labor and hardship many sleepless nights, starvation and thirst. And not sleepless nights because he was up staying late on Twitter or TikTok, but sleepless nights because he was in terror or fear and threat. Um, starvation, thirst, hungry, cold, unclothed. Apart from such external things, verse 28, there's the daily pressure on me of concern, anxiety for all the churches who is weak without my being weak, who's made to stumble without my burning concern. So Paul knew anxious thoughts. Paul was pressed with anxiety, and he finds consolation that delights his soul in the next chapter in the overshadowing power of Christ in his weakness, in his weakness. He doesn't say, after I'm done being weak, I, become, I, I am strong. What does he say? When I am weak, then I am strong. When his weakness looms, then God strengthens him, very like the verse we're looking at here. So anxious thoughts arise from many sources, and none of us is free from something in which I, I've just been talking about. None of us is untouched by at least something in what we've just looked over. My anxious thoughts, and then he says, within me. So this is not just a situation. It's, it's, it's in the citadel of his mind. It's in the fortress of his soul. It's within. And as a famous philosopher once said in a movie, everywhere you go, there you are. And when you have these anxious thoughts within them, within you, where do you go to get away from them? 
There's nowhere you can go because they go with you. They're anxious thoughts within me. And nobody can really share or really understand what's within us. Uh, it's not a, a bad thing to say that I know how you're feeling, but of course nobody exactly knows how another person is feeling. You can imagine, you can empathize. It's not a stupid thing to say, but it's not ever literally true. Look at Proverbs 14. And we will look at Proverbs 14. Verse 10. Proverbs 14.10. The heart knows its own bitterness, and a stranger does not share its gladness. Very literally, the first uh, line is, the heart knows the bitterness of its soul. So there again, very similar to our Psalm 94.19. Consolations delight my soul, which is where my anxious thoughts are abounding. Uh, bitterness, it's the word that, that Naomi renames herself to Mara because she's embittered, because she feels life as God has dealt her a very bitter hand. Well, the heart knows its own bitterness. Another person's heart does not. And a stranger does not share its gladness. I'll just give you another verse to note down. First uh, Corinthians verse 11 for who among men knows the spirit of the man except for the spirit of the man within him who among men knows the depths of a man the things within a man except for the spirit of the man which is in him in other words only I fully know what's inside of me apart from God and so these anxious thoughts they're uniquely mine they're uniquely mine can anyone else share in them well, there is one who came to share them. There is one who came to share our lot. Turn to Isaiah 53. And this is a, a startling prophecy against all expectation. In chapters uh, 7 and 9 and 11, Isaiah had talked about how glorious Messiah is. And indeed, he starts this prophecy in 52.13 by saying he'll prosper and be high and lifted up and greatly exalted, but that, that's how he'll end up. That's not how he'll start out. Verse 14 of chapter 52 says, many are appalled at you. His appearance is marred uh, more than any man. And then chapter 53, verse 2 uh, he says, here's this incredible report we bring you. He grew up like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should desire him. Now look at verse 3. That's my focus. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Literally knowing grief. A man of sorrows and knowing grief. Who is this? This is our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he's God incarnate, he didn't become incarnate in a celebrity. He didn't become incarnate in Beverly Hills or in a mansion where he had people. And this is something that's very striking about our, politici our politicians and, and our celebrities for that matter. They say absolutely absurd things and absolutely get away with it. Why? Because they're layers away from anyone who would challenge them. They're kept layers away from such people. That was not the experience of the Son of God. He was a man of sorrows and knowing grief. He was born to a poor family, and he grew up in a poor nation. And so he knows our griefs. And so if we have 
anxious thoughts within us, Jesus Christ can sympathize. Jesus Christ does know how we feel because he experienced them himself. Look at Mark chapter 14. This is such a startling verse when you remember of whom you're reading this. So Mark chapter 14, and we're just going to look at verse 38. He has singled out Peter, uh, Peter, James, and John to go with him. Jesus has. And he urges them to pray. And he says in verse 38 that you must keep watching and praying for the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Uh, well, what is his own experience at this time? Look at verse 34. That's really going to be my focus. Verse 34. My soul is deeply grieved, deeply saddened, the Greek says, to the point of death. Now, this is Jesus speaking. Overwhelmed with such sorrow, he could die, he's saying. Now, you might say, well, okay, I will give that God knows what it's like to be me. God knows my feelings because he knows everything. That's true. He couldn't know it better. But you do also have to say Jesus knows it for having been a man. Jesus knows what it is to be a human being and feel such crushing sadness that it liked to have killed him. And knowing sorrows and knowing grief, this was his. So, this means precious things for us. Look at Hebrews chapter 4. So the writer says in verse 14, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens. Okay, well, you know, in isolation, is that a good thing for me? (laughs) To have such a distant high priest like that? Pass through the heavens, that means he's nowhere in my experience. Well, but read on, Jesus, the Son of God, let us take hold of our confession, that is the faith we, we claim to believe, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things like we are, yet, say it with me, without sin. But that doesn't mean he suffered less. That means he suffered more. Because we, we bail, we buckle, or we're delivered when the temptation meter hits, am I generous in saying two or three? But with Jesus, it went to ten every time because he never buckled, he never bailed, and he never had to be delivered from temptation because he stood against it. But so that's the sort of person who's passed through the heavens. For me, we have such a high priest. That's our high priest. He's in the heavens at the right hand of God pleading for us, and he knows what it's like to be us. He knows what it's like to suffer and feel what we suffer and feel from having been such a one as us. So they're my anxious thoughts. They're within me. But I have one in heaven who knows what my anxious thoughts feel like, my miserable thoughts, my fearful thoughts, my distress, my despairing, my sad, my grieving thoughts. He knows these. Now, I want to focus on the phrase, 
when my anxious thoughts multiply within me. Now, that is a very striking phrase. In, this is something I actually restudied in Hebrew to make sure that I was understanding it correctly. And without you know, boring you with syntactical stuff, I just want to tell you the, the meaning of it. The meaning of the way this is phrased in Hebrew is the author has, has, has put it in such a way as to stress the fact that it is, when do God's consolations delight my soul? When does that happen? at the point when my anxious thoughts are multiplying within me. When that's happening, his consolations delight my soul. Now that is a very, very important point. It may, may seem like a small point, but it really, really is not. It is when I am being overwhelmed with these thoughts of, of grief and sorrow and woe and fear, it's at that point that God has consolations that can delight me. As opposed to what? As opposed to, well, you know, you clean yourself up and come and then we'll talk. You get through this thing and come and then maybe I can help you. You, you work your way out of that debt and maybe I can work with you. You, you. you pass through that mood and then maybe I can talk to you. You get out of that trouble and then maybe I've got something for you. No, 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 no. This is the opposite of that. When it's happening, God has consolations to delight our soul. At the very point when we're at our worst, at the point we're at our lowest, at the point we're in the darkest place, God has consolations to delight our soul. That's just what this verse says. In fact, he says it as his personal testimony. Now, I've heard preachers who are good, faithful men, but I've got to tell you, as I listen to them, I know they're not of the temperament type to go through the sorts of things I have. And when they teach these things from the Bible, I, I just, in my head, I'm thinking, this is all like on a blackboard to you. I mean, you believe it, but you, you haven't had to take this medicine. You're telling me I've heard this really helps <laughs> when you have headaches. Oh, do you have headaches? Not a one in my life. Oh, okay. So how do you know? I've heard it on good, good testimony. Well, you know, that might be perfectly right, but doesn't it mean more to you if somebody says, try this, and you say, have you tried it? And they say, oh yeah, it's done worlds for me. Doesn't that make a difference? And that's what he's saying. When my disturbing, disquieting thoughts crowd up within me and multiply within me, at that point, God's consolations delight my soul. Are you still open to Hebrews 4? I hope some of you are because I want you to look at the next verse. We have this high priest who's been tempted in all things like we are, he says. So what's the practical takeaway? Verse 16 says... Therefore, because that's the kind of high priest we have, therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to, tell, to, and find grace to help when? In time of need. Not after we feel better, but in time of need. That's what this verse is talking about. Well, I'm very interested in learning about this, are you? I'd like to know about that kind of consolation, would you? Is it just an academic thing to any of us? Is it just something that I guess I'm not doing anything else? Sure, go ahead and talk about it, Pastor. Or is it, yeah, I really, really need to know how to get a hold of God's consolation. I need to for myself and I need to for people that I try to help. Well, then let's do that. Let's look at that, Roman numeral two. Your consolations delight my soul. When? My disquieting, unhappy thoughts are multiplying within me. That's when God's consolations delight my soul. So, your consolations, it says. And let's not go further than that. Your consolations. 
As opposed to what? Well, as opposed to man's consolations. As opposed to the world's consolations. As opposed to false religion's consolations. Because it's not as if God is the only one offering consolation, right? Bookstores are filled with self-help books. And the religion section is also very full. All speaking with great authority and assurance. And the world offers consolation. But the consolations of the world are, well, they're either temporary or they're deceitful. And in fact, possibly the temporary nature is uh, the deceitfulness of it. (laughs) Because the world only can offer things. Or the world as the world can only offer lies. Have we seen that together? The world can offer a burger, a really good burger. The world can offer gold and fame and power. But do those, will those deal with guilt? Will those deal with death? Will those give us real meaning in life? Will they give us real truth? Will they give us real light in existential darkness such as we live in? Will they do that? Will they tell us what's right and what's wrong? No, they won't do any of those things. And how many of the things that the world gives will go past the grave? Well, just guilt. The guilt will go. The sin will go past the grave. But everything else, you know, you've heard me say it often, you never see a U-Haul behind a hearse. Because you really can't take anything good the world gives with you. And it may be given with the best intention in life, in in mind, uh, but it is not what we most deeply need. It will not deal with our sin or any of the fruits of our sin. So a look at uh, John 16, 33, where Jesus makes this sort of point in so many words. Jesus is talking in this upper room discourse about the, the fact that he's leaving and that they're headed for very difficult, horrible times of hatred and persecution. And he's saying he's going to send them the Holy Spirit. And that's what he's got for them, that he will come to them in the Holy Spirit and they will have the Spirit to guide them. But he says in verse 32, Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered each to his own home and to leave me alone. And yet I'm not alone because the Father is with me. These things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. He gives peace in himself. He gives peace not as the world gives. He gives joy not as the world gives. He gives uniquely his peace. His peace. His peace that is uh, resting on his uh, eternal person, his absolute truth, that cannot be taken away by anything that the world will do. This is given to us by Him, and it's given to us to keep forever. So, that said, let's talk uh, about these consolations even more. And I'd like to um, do it by way of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So turn there with me, if you would, please. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So what does consolation mean? It's just another word for comfort. That would have been a a perfectly good translation. Your comforts. It's what 
comes to a troubled, disturbed person and, and sets his mind at ease. Comes to a hopeless person, gives him hope. Comes to a grieving person, gives him joy and gladness. That's what comfort does. Paul wants to talk about that in these verses. He says in 2 Thessalonians 2.16, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, encourage your hearts and strengthen them in every good work and word. Ah, that's just wonderful. Isn't that, isn't that just golden? Just golden. May our Lord Jesus Christ Himself. So this is something He looks to Jesus to do in His own person. Not with our help. It's something He does. And, and God our Father. And here's the basis for the comfort that's going to be given. Who has loved us. Now, there's the basis of everything. And we'll talk about this, Lord willing, a bit more next week when I come at this psalm. It's not going to be part two. It's just going to be a whole different psalm, uh, sermon, but on the same psalm. <laughs> uh, we'll talk a bit more about God's love and God's loving kindness. But, but God loves His elect in several ways. And fundamental to them is it is a, it is a love of His will. It's a love the Old Testament calls chesed, loving kindness. It is a love that is fixed on those that he chooses to love. Now, this is where those who submit to the teaching of the Bible and those who have other ideas are very much parted. If, if I'm a person who believes that I have a relationship with God because of my decision, well, then that relationship will always be as strong as my decision is, right? Because if it started with my decision... I don't know how you can argue it won't end with my decision. Or if you have trouble with saying that, then, then, well, then why, why did I get a decision at any point? If I can't decide against, but I did create it by my decision. But the teaching of the Bible is that God selected us to be in Christ before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1, 3 and 4. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Christ. He, he predestined us to become holy and blameless. This is something he saw us as sinners and set his love on us. You did not choose me, Jesus says, but I chose you. And indeed, uh, only those who the Father reveals the Son to can know the Son, Jesus says, and, and the same as the Father. This is, it rests in the will and the eternal decision of God. God sovereignly sets his love on us. That's the basis of our relationship. It doesn't rest on my decision, thank God. The decision I make results from his decision. My decision rests on his decision. His decision to love me doesn't rest on my decision to repent. My decision to love him, what does John say? We love because he first loved us. My love is a result of his love. My choice is a result of his choice. And so he loved us and gave us eternal comfort. Well, you see, this is the only way he can give us eternal comfort, because if it depended on us, changeable like the water and the wind, then how could he give us anything eternal? It would be till our next bad decision. But it rests on his decision. And so the comfort he gives, because it's a comfort that comes from his counsel and his, his mind and his decrees and his heart, it's eternal comfort. Nothing can take it away. Nothing can change it. So it's an eternal comfort because it rests on the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's good hope because it rests on the word and the nature of God. You know that a human being can, with all the best will in the world, make a promise and not keep it. I say with all the best will in the world. Why? Well, he could die, for instance. 
Circumstances out of his control could prevent him, or he could just forget, or just all sorts of things can happen, but none of these things is true with God. God's promises are made from the perspective of a perfect, pure character and of exhaustive knowledge of everything. And so on that basis, he gives good hope and he gives it by grace. So once again, it doesn't rest on me, it rests on him. It is entirely a gift given by God. And so that being the case, Paul prays that he encourage your hearts and strengthen them in every good work and word. Ah, this comfort, this encouragement, then it comes from God. So that's why the psalmist can say, your consolation, not the world's consolation, not as the world gives as God give to us, God gives his consolation to us. It comes from an infinite mind, a pure heart, and absolute sovereignty. None can stay his hand or say, what are you doing? None can defeat God's purpose. And God sets his purpose of love on his people. Your consolations. That's the sort of consolation we're talking about. Are you interested in knowing that sort of consolation? None else can give such consolation. Not the best, mightiest person in the world can give such consolation. Only God can give such consolation. So how do his consolations delight my soul when, when my anxious thoughts are multiplying within me? Well, what about, uh, is there ever delays in our knowing delight? Look at, look at Psalm 10 and look at a factor that we've got to, to factor in here. Because I'm sure somebody's thinking, uh, for very good reason, I'm sure somebody's thinking that um, I've known times when God's consolations haven't delighted me during my trials. I didn't know them during my trials. We're, we're going to talk about that straight up. But look at uh, Psalm 10 and see how it starts off. Why do you stand afar off, O Yahweh? Why do you hide yourself in times of distress? And look at uh, Psalm 13, the one that Spurgeon called the howling song because of the fourfold how long. How long, O Yahweh, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Four times. So there obviously is being a delay between his experience of misery and God's action in his case. So here's the question. I mean, it's beyond um, question, and it is biblically obvious that there is often a delay between God's promise and its realization. There often is a delay between our prayer and God's answer to our prayer. Really? Ask Abraham. Abraham would say, amen. Often a great delay between God's promise and its delivery. Israel could say that. When When did they get a promise of Messiah? In Eden. When did he come? long time after. (laughs) So yes, the experience of delay is nothing to which God's saints are strangers. So my question then, given that it's beyond question that answers to prayer sometimes can be delayed long beyond when we experience um, uh, misery and, 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 and anxious thoughts, are there delights for me right now though? Though there may not be the answer to the prayer, is there still a delight that I can hold on to right now when I'm in pain, right now when I'm in misery, right now when I'm being persecuted, right now when I'm being treated badly, is there consolation for me then? And my answer is yes. Turn to Psalm 5. Psalm 5, verse 
my answer. The verse's answer is yes. So I'm just saying, yep, I agree with the Bible. <laughs> it's what I do. Psalm 5 is what we do. So Psalm 5 is a psalm that he prays as a cry for help. Verse 2 says, it's my cry for help. And as he's waiting for God's answer, he says in verse 3, I will order my prayer and eagerly watch. So he's sure God will answer. But what in the meanwhile? Look at verse 4. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil does not sojourn with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all workers of iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. But as for me, verse 7, in the abundance of your loving kindness, I will enter your house. At your holy temple, I will worship in fear of you. So you ask the question, when? And the answer is, always. You see, this doesn't wait for the answer to the prayer. When is God a God who doesn't delight in wickedness? Always. Even when the wicked seems to be prevalent? Yes. What does God do when he sees the wicked boasting? Scripture tells us, what does he do? He laughs because he sees his day is coming. God sees every story as the whole story. And he hates the wicked and he will absolutely make every one of them answer for it. So what does the saint do at this time? He reminds himself who God is. Do you see? That's exactly what he's doing. Though he sees wickedness, he's reminding himself, but God judges wickedness. God has not changed. God hates wickedness. And then verse 7 I am abundantly loved by God. I have a, a crowd of God's loving kindness on me, and in that I will worship. That's true right now, even before the prayer is answered. I take consolation in that. Look at uh, Psalm 6. Another one written during suffering. And in verse 8, he says, Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, for Yahweh has heard the sound of my weeping. Yahweh has heard my supplication. Yahweh receives my prayer. Well, how can he say that? Has it happened yet? No. But he knows it's true because of who God is. He knows God hears his prayer. He knows God listens. He knows God will answer according to his good wisdom. So he knows that now before he even sees the prayer. Is that a, is that a comfort to know that? Is it a comfort to know that God is holy? As Psalm 5 focused on, yes, it is. Is it a comfort to know that I am an object of his loving kindness, as Psalm 5 focused on? Yes, it is. Is it a comfort to know that even when he hasn't yet answered me, he has heard my prayer and he will answer it in his own way, in his own time? Is that a comfort? Yes, it is. It's a delightful comfort. And sometimes I need to remind myself of that. Look at Psalm 13. The how long psalm, right? We saw that four times. How long? But look at how it ends, verses 5 and 6. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. Even when I am waiting and not seeing God's hand move, I trust in his chesed, in his loyal love, his committed love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. That's a sure thing because of his promise. I will sing to Yahweh because he's dealt bountifully with me. Uh, look at Psalm 23. You say, well, I know Psalm 23. Well, have you, have you noticed this about Psalm 23? Verse uh, 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Do you note, he does not say, I will fear no evil because I feel you near to me. And that's what we want. And that's our way of saying, I don't want to have to exercise faith. 
because faith is the substance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And there's whole movements of Christianity that want to bypass what the Bible says Christian living is and say, oh no, I want to feel it and experience it instead of believing it on the basis of God's word. So, but however, this saint of God fears no evil because God is with him. How does he know that? Because he's promised. I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you, Yahweh promised. So, he walks with me. If I'm through, going through the valley of the shadow of death, why then he's with me? Because he promised to be with me. And so chapter, uh, verse 6, pardon me, surely goodness and loving kindness will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. However long the valley of the shadow of death is, I know what is at the end of it. And I know what will follow me through it. Chesed and Tov, loving kindness and goodness, they're going to chase me. That's the verb David uses, pursue. The Legacy Standard Bible correctly translates it. Not just follow, but pursue. And I end up in God's house forever. That's assured. I ask you, is that a delightful consolation? It doesn't get better than that. It doesn't get better than that. And that's available right now. One more, Isaiah 50, verse 10. Isaiah 50, verse 10. Who is among you that fears Yahweh, that listens to the voice of his servant? Now, this is somebody who's in the right place. He fears Yahweh, which is the beginning of knowledge, as we know. He submits to him, and he shows that in the fact that he listens to the voice of his servant, whether we take that as the voice of the prophets who came before Christ or the voice of Christ himself. He's walking in accord with God's word. It's whatever he's experiencing, it's not because he's in some sort of sin. But yet, look at the next clause, that walks in darkness and has no light. Now, let me ask you a question. I guess you have to say it's a trick question, but hopefully it wouldn't trick anybody who's listening. Exactly. Can you you fear God and walk according to his word and still walk in darkness and have no life? No? What does this verse say? I didn't mean it to be a trick question. Who is among you that fears Yahweh, that listens to the voice of his servant, that walks in darkness and has no light? So really the answer to my question is, apparently. Because that's exactly what he envisions. He can be in a dark place. He can be in, feeling like he's got no light, even though he's walking with the Lord. But here's what that person needs to do. Let him trust in the name of Yahweh and rely on his God. In other words, the very thing we saw in Psalm 23, verse 4. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you were with me. So he trusts in God. And so this person who's experiencing a time of darkness, as we saw in the psalm, where the psalmist says, why do you stand afar off? And the other psalm says, how long? Four times. Well, if you're in that place then, Isaiah says, Trust in the name of Yahweh. Trust in his character, just as we saw the psalmist doing. Remind yourself of his truth, his holiness, his loving kindness, his love for you. Trust in the name of Yahweh and rely. That's a word that just means lean your whole weight on him. Pull, he needs to put his whole weight on his God. So that's the consolations that delight us when, when 
our disquieting thoughts multiply within us. And finally, I want to talk about how and bring it all together under C. Your consolations delight my soul. So how did they do this? And I, I uh, will illustrate this with a story, a true story, a story from my life. There was a time when um, something happened to me that was just uh, devastatingly painful. Something was done to me. Uh, something happened that just absolutely devastated me, absolutely crushed me, absolutely uh, just made me want to curl up into a ball and just hurt. And uh, so what I would normally do in a situation like that is I would just curl up into a ball and hurt. I know a lot of people, when they run into trial and stuff, their first response is to pray. That's wonderful. God love you. That's exactly what you want to do. I'm not that way. (laughs) Uh, Pain makes me want to go within, makes me want to just curl up. Um, and draw within. This time I didn't, though. This time I went to God, and I cried out to him, and I begged him to comfort me. I begged him to, to lighten my heart, to lighten my spirit. I begged him to give, me, to give me light, to give me joy, to give me some sort of relief from this pain that I was feeling. And there was no answer. Not a bit. Not a bit. But an hour later, still nothing. The next day, however, still nothing. Nothing. In fact, I never got exactly what I prayed for the way I was praying for it. Now, that really, that was a hard thing. That, that really um, unsettled me. I mean, that was not something I could just walk off. Why would God saw this thing happening, and God saw it happen, and God heard me pray why did he not comfort me? Why did he not lift my spirit? Why didn't he ease my pain? I, I don't understand that. Obviously, first of all, I'm concerned for myself. <laughs> but I'm also thinking now as a pastor, people come up to me in pain and I'm going to tell them to pray. But in my heart, I'm going to think it might not work. <laughs> I mean, what, what, what kind of pastoring is that? So you see, this is a real deal. This is a real issue. You're thinking, I don't think I've ever heard an illustration like this in a sermon before. Well, stay with me. (laughs) Stay with me. I thought about that for a long time, and I would say that light didn't really come to me on that for months or longer. That's something I had to just sort of put aside and leave it there and revisit it periodically. And finally, I think that I got it. And let me approach the answer to my story with an illustration. Then we'll come back to the story and then we'll come back to the point. So you're having someone over for dinner and you walk in and you say, I hope you're hungry. And he says, I am starving. Are you kidding me? I'm starving. I could eat an entire horse live. Say, okay, well, there's no need of that. Uh, Just come over here. I've got you set. And you bring him over to your table and you've got there, you've made steak, baked potatoes, the whole nine, okra, squash, whatever. Um, Make yourself happy in your imagination, but it's a sumptuous feast. Let's just stipulate it's a sumptuous feast. You've laid out for him there with his plate and his instruments, and you sit him down, and you say, all right, let's give thanks, and you give thanks, and you say, dig in, and he says, well, I'm starving, and you say, okay, well, that's great, so dig in. And he says, I am absolutely famished. I mean, I am absolutely starving. Feed me something. And you say, yeah, tuck in. I mean, tuck in. Go ahead. And he says, 
I feel like my stomach's touching my spine. I mean, I am so hungry. I am just, I'm starting to get dizzy here. I'm, the room's starting to spin. You say, dude, 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 dig in. I mean, it's right there. Dig in. Just, I mean, take that, that fork and that knife and carve and chew and swallow and you'll feel better. And he says, starving, just starving, starving, starving. You say, then eat, eat, eat. And he says, why won't you feed me anything? And you say, it's right there. It's, I mean, if you were a year old, I might tuck a bib on you and cover it and put it in your little mouth and say, here comes the airplane. But dude, you're, you're, you're 29, so let's just do this thing. And he says, that's it. If you don't care that I'm starving, I'm out of here. And he goes out the front door and slams it. And you hear outside, he pauses one more time at his car and says, starving! and then drives off. Now, what's the meaning of my little illustration, and how does it apply to my story? What did I finally come to realize had happened? Well, it's a funny thing, in a way. wasn't funny at the time. But here I am, an absolute believer in the sufficiency of Scripture and the fact that we have in Scripture every word we need from God, and that that is how God speaks to us. You don't look for voices outside of Scripture. And what was I praying for? I was praying for God to directly give me better feelings. I wasn't thinking of Scripture. I wasn't applying to Scripture. I wasn't looking to Scripture. What I preached and what I absolutely believed wasn't a hypocrite. I'm just slow. I mean, I've never hidden that from you. I'm slow to learn some things, and that was one of them. And I realized that there was that box of consolations that I did not really dig into. That's what, that's, yes, when I was younger, maybe God would have just helped like that. And I don't say that he never will at all. I don't say that at all. But I had been a Christian quite some time, was a pastor, and I really should have known better. And it was for my good, I can say now, it was for my good that God showed me, no, I'm like that guy sitting there saying, I'm starving. You've got to feed me something. I'm going to die. And God's saying, I got 66 books full of comfort for you right there. I've got the same comfort that David had, that Isaiah had, that even Christ went to as when he, in the days of his flesh, that that is yours, that is all yours. I am speaking to you in that. Just pick up your fork and your knife, carve and eat. Well, that was a, that was a lesson worth learning, but that was a hard one. And so Scripture says that. There is an aspect to, you see, God has, and and this is a danger of our circle, our corner of Christendom, that we think, okay, we know things, we're done. Because we've learned things and we know them. That's good, we're done. No. (laughs) What does Scripture say? What does Jesus say? If you know these things, you are blessed if you... And faith, the Word of God didn't help the Hebrews in the wilderness because they did not accept the Word of God with faith like the believers did. And so God's Word and all the things we know about God's Word don't do us any good unless we trust them, unless we lay hold of them and make them ours. I'll show you a couple of verses that say this. Um, I'll just remind you Hebrews 11.1 because we've looked at it so many times, but what does it say? Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of things not seen. And what is faith? It's my response to a word from God, and I mean only what is in Scripture. Not some pop-off make-believe thing, but something that is in Scripture. 
Faith takes a word from God, understands it, and rests on it. And that's what gives me assurance of these things I don't see. And so, take a look with me at Psalm 56, verse 3. Bless you. Psalm 56, verse 3. Probably be better if I was in Psalms than Isaiah, although I'm sure that's a good verse. Psalm 56, verse 3. When I am afraid, literally the Hebrew text says, in the day I fear. So at the very time I am afraid, I will trust in you. So do you see their faith is an act of the will? Now, in my experience, I was just, I was begging God for feelings. Uh, But faith is an act of the will. Faith takes a word from God and says, well, this is mine from my Father. This is what God gave me, and cherishes it, and chews it, and delights in it, in all of its comfort and strength. In the day I'm afraid, I will trust in you. Faith is a choice. One more, James chapter 1. This will be the last one I plan to look at uh, with you today. I reserve the right to change my mind, but that's my thought. James chapter 1, and look at this. This uh, very well-known verse, but how well-practiced. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. (laughs) Well, if it doesn't sweat me, it's not a trial, right? (laughs) It's not a trial if it doesn't bring me to the end of myself. That's not a trial. That's just a, and then that happened. It's only a trial if it really tests me, if it really tries me. And is it it our natural response to, to, to encounter something difficult and say, Wow, that was fun. (laughs) Something difficult, something we didn't choose for fun, something that really tests us and taxes us and tries us. Boy, that was fun. Uh, No. Do I look back at the experience I related to you and say, boy, that was fun? No, no, I really, really don't. So how do I consider it joy? Got to be an act of my will. It's got to be a conscious choice that I make by applying God's word in the verses that follow, explaining why it's a joyful thing because of what it does in my character. So I apply God's word to this and I see it differently. But it's an act of the will to do so, not an act of feeling. So I'll I'll exercise my right to look at one more verse. Look at Romans chapter 5. And there I really, really mean to end today. You heard the wiggle word, though. I mean to end. See, I I used to work in IT, and and we're masters of such words. This should work, you say. But you said this would work. No, I, I said it should work. And so here's where I mean to end. Romans chapter 5, where he's talked about the peace we have with God through Christ and the grace we know, and we boast in hope of the glory of God. But verse 3 says, and not only this, but we also boast in our affliction. (laughs) What? That sounds nuts. And yet he says the reason why. Because we know that affliction brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not put to shame, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And we know these things by our faith in the Word of God, in the promise of God. And so we can actually boast in these situations and have buoyant, joyous hope in these situations despite their pain because of the Word of God. 
because th- this is, this is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to open this up a lot more next week, but I just want to make a big point about this as we close. All of these great things we've said about faith and hope, I want you to notice that this is all for our world, and it's all for tried people. None of this is premised on us having an easy life or having things go our way. In fact, the opposite. This is for our world, a world in which there is death and disease and injustice. And in that world, God says, we can have delight. We can have delightful consolation. We can have delightful consolation from Him, from His hand, because His exceedingly great and precious promises enable us to lay hold of Him and know the joys that He gives us. So, I say in closing, these delightful consolations, which are for now, for this life, for our situation, these consolations are only for children of God, only for believers. And so if you're not a believer, then I urge you, believe, repent. Why would you not? What possible reason would you have for not fleeing to Jesus and begging to be reconciled to God through him? It's only for believers, but I also want to say it's for all believers. This is the birthright of every last child of God, and nobody has a right to say it's wonderful that some Christians are so favored. If only I were, oh no, no, no. This is for all who are in Christ. God's exceeding great and precious promises, his delightful consolations are for every blood-bought saint of Christ. They're our heritage, and it is wonderful. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit will powerfully seal these words to our heart, and not just these words, but these truths. It is a temptation as we grow in our knowledge of things to think that we're growing, but we might be uh, knowing more things without growing because we don't lay hold of them, because we don't apply them. So help us all to grow, not simply in knowing your truth, but in rejoicing in your truth and exulting in your truth and making your truth ours in our experience. And I pray for every wounded and, and sorrowed soul here that the Spirit of God will apply the balm of his uh, promises of your great love and loving kindness to that heart and strengthen and give light and assurance of your presence and your goodness. In Jesus' name. Amen.